Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I need to stop looking at you. Rolling. Take one. Is it going to be all right? Welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on today's show, we'll be talking to photographer Courtney Coles about her many, many projects. We'll also discuss the various photographic incarnations of Imaging Cunningham, part one. Vanya's recently taken some cinematic inspiration. We'll talk to her about that. There's the answering machine, zine reviews, and my God, so, so much more. But... Any hoodles, how are you? Oh, I was going to ask you how you were first. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's like I've never done this before. Oh, okay, well, uh, I'm packing up for Mexico. Okay. Uh, just kidding. I'm not. Um, I'm going to pack last minute, but I'm going to talk about packing uh, okay. for the next at least two days because I have to leave in two days. So um, thinking about film, I'm really excited, obviously bringing the Pentax and just thinking about other cameras to bring. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of spring cleaning around here, selling clothes, uh, loading books to uh, little cousins, and camera equipment uh, on Etsy occasionally. So if you want to know if I got something that you want, you should take a look. Well, you're you're going to Mexico? Yes. I mean, I'm asking you like I didn't know this. Like, oh my God, you going to Mexico? (laughs) I am going. I'm going to Saladita. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but last March, I went kind of like spur of the moment uh, four day trip and kind of doing the same thing. But this time it was fairly planned (laughs) and I'm going to go for about a week. And um, yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, My friend Morgan's getting married and it's uh, a surf beach wedding. So Kind of perfect. <laughs> Morgan's your friend who has surfed every day for the past six years. Is that right? Yes. I think it's six years now. I think it's six years consecutively. She did a article in the Surfer's Journal a while back about it um, and kind of just discussed like how she started. I actually didn't know the entire story uh, until I read it and I was like crying, bawling. Uh, but yeah, she's an incredible human being, (laughs) super inspirational. And yeah, like rain, shine every single day. She goes broken knee, broken ankle, death in the family. Yeah. I mean, obviously when she had surgery and stuff, she had friends uh, push her into a wave and like have people carry her like out into the water. Um, But yeah, she's, she's just, is amazing. And I'm really excited to kind of be a part of this. And I really can't wait to just photograph uh, all these wonderful surfers that are coming down there. (laughs) It's going to be, it's going to be really nice. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Bringing some Fuji wrap because that was like such a magical role. I just shot some Portra 400 VC 220 that was like expired in 2002. I shot that at like 200 ISO and Oh, you guys, it looks so, so 
good. And of course, I only have one more roll of it, uh, but I will bring that. Oh, Yeah, it's a good cause. Why not? Yes. And um, I've been saving this roll of Portrait 800 that I have. Um, mm. Maybe a dawn patrol, like swim out there and watch the sun rise from behind the mountains and get some surf pictures with uh, Portrait 800 220 that I got from the mysterious Tiffin. <laughs> Where? Yeah, wherever she is. Yeah, and I feel like maybe we should talk about that a little bit, just a tiny, tiny bit. Yeah, we, um, well, I don't know how much we should really talk about it. We don't know anything, so there's not much no. to say. We are wondering where Tiffin is. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. We've tried to contact her, obviously, before we even started this new part of the season. And uh, I, we know that she has been really, really busy at work and working really hard and super stoked and proud. But she kind of just disappeared. <laughs> and Which, we don't know how to find her. No. So, uh, APB on Tiffin Sinclair, I guess. Yes. We miss you. We love you. Please come back to us. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Eric. So that was a lot about me. Please tell bit. me, tell me yeah. all the things about you that I, I and everybody else want to know. Well, you would definitely want to know and everybody else would like to know about my zine again. <laughs> it, I mean, I know I broke in last episode saying, hey, this is future Eric. Uh, the zine's out. And that was, at the, I think, towards the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. But here, beginning of the episode, the zine is out finally. I have sold out of all of the deluxe editions with the negative and the prints and all that. So all we've got left are the standard editions. But the standard editions are really nice. You get you get a screen-printed cover. You get a screen-printed bag that it comes in. You mm -hmm. get 88 pages of X-ray, well, of X-ray photos, of photos taken with X-ray film, not, not bones or anything. They are taken on a Graflex. And I, I don't know. I, it's one of my favorite zines that I've done. I really want people to see it. I'm very, very happy. It. And there's a bonus, and I'm not supposed to tell you guys about it, but I just almost spoiled it. You can't, you can't spoil it. It's a super surprise that I think two people have recognized so far. That's, That's it? it? Just two people, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, also, I, I guess, apart from the zine, I've kind of... Well, we've both talked a little bit about Angel. Remember Angel, the person we interviewed last episode, which yeah. seems like so long ago. I know. We've been well, like kind of on it with interviews lately. It's freaking me out. And it's also kind of like making us <laughs> kind of lazy. I don't know. It is. Yeah, we're a little off of our schedule because of, um, well, I think we're just a little, we're getting a little cocky here. But we talked to Angel a little bit about how she shares photos on her Instagram stories. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of got me thinking a lot about doing that too. And a lot of people do it and I, I've done it myself, but the way that she does it is, I mean, I don't know, I don't remember if this was included in the interview or not. Uh, secret, we edit the interviews down from about an hour, hour and a half. Oh, I'm sure minutes. they know that by now. I'm pretty sure they know that. And if you want the full version, that's on Patreon. But yes. one of the things she said was that she tries to find people who, who make art and photographs that, I don't remember her exact words, but were kind of a reality adjacent is how mm. I took it. Mm -hmm. And so I've been looking for that. At least that's what I've been looking for. Whatever she said has inspired me to look for that. Things that are 
that show reality because it's photography, but show it in a, in a slightly skewed way. And so I've been finding photographs and not just people I follow. I've been looking at hashtags and I've been just kind of searching it out. And it's given me a lot of ideas for projects of my own, not things that I would do, but maybe things that I would promote and things that I would, I would like to put together. So maybe more on that in the future. I'm still not sure if I'm up to the task of, of think, something like I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. But regardless... That's been on my mind uh, so much. And it's it's not just about boosting people, though it, that is a really nice benefit of it. But it's about taking inspiration from those around you and trying to trying to gather people around you who inspire you. And that also sort of segues into our Imogene Cunningham yeah. uh, feature coming up later in the episode. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, One thing Perfect. I do want to remind people of right at the top of the episode, is that we have a hashtag that we we share people's photos with on the All Through a Lens account on Instagram. Yes. We always mention it on the closing credits, but I don't think anybody, including myself, really listens to those. <gasps> that is so sad. But yeah, we do the, the it's just hashtag All Through a Lens podcast. And I go through it once or twice, three times a week and pick out a bunch of photos to uh, to share with everybody. Things that, that I like, things that that I find interesting. Yeah, and sometimes I do it too, but not as much as, <laughs> as Eric. <laughs> wow. Randomly. <laughs> randomly, randomly. Oh my gosh. Well, each episode, and you can all say this along with me now, we put on our house slippers and our cozy cardigans because that's what you do when we when you check the answering machine. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. You can't you can't possibly check an answering machine without putting on a cozy cardigan and and some slippers. Okay, well this that's what I would like or picture myself doing. What I would actually do would throw my keys kind of like in the area where the keys are supposed to go, but they would fall under the, like on the floor underneath the couch. I'd kick off my shoes if I even had shoes. Probably wouldn't. Or limp into the house because I cut my foot Mm -hmm. and then drop everything as I walk towards the answering machine and then press the button. You would, but first, (laughs) first we ask our listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question that we come up with. Mm-hmm. This episode, what is the uh, the weird-ass question we came up with? I picked it this time. You did. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm actually, I want to know, which camera do you regret getting rid of? That's a good question. Hmm. Which camera do you regret getting rid of? Vanya, which camera what are, do you <laughs> No, why don't you just push the button? All right, fine. Hello? Hey, what's up? Cool. We're not home right now, but thank you for calling all through a lens. Leave us a massage. Hey, Eric and Vanya, this is Mina from Sydney. Um, I'm on Instagram as at crook and flail. Um, answering the question around which camera I regret getting rid of, it may sound a bit cheesy, but it's really any camera I didn't give a solid chance. Um, the, 
the temptation of buying and selling and and the accessibility to all this gear makes it really easy to just flip through different uh, different cameras way too fast so i'd say any camera i didn't give a fair chance uh, that would probably be my answer have you had those oh my gosh that's like the that's like the perfect answer <laughs> You We're done the, then. Like, Thanks yeah, for listening. Yeah, that's it. I, I, we don't need to listen to any other one. <laughs> Have you? You've done that? You, you, you'll you buy a camera, you'll get a camera somehow, and then you're just like, ah, oh, fuck it, I don't really want to deal with this, and you'll give it away or sell it, and yeah, never give yeah. it a chance. A fair chance. So the, like, the Voigtlander Vogue is one <laughs> of those cameras that I've, like, tempted to sell, but I, I feel bad because it's like, I haven't really given it, like, much of a chance. It's so ridiculous. And then... Yeah. um I need to give you all your uh, exactas back. I, no, I, you don't. I do. No, you you really don't. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Please don't. And then also the Holga, which was gifted to me. And I feel like such an asshole because I'm just like, I don't know why. I think it's just the plastic feeling of the camera. I just, I don't connect with it. And I, I feel bad. I'm like, maybe I should like put it underneath my pillow or something. What? What? Like for the Holga fairy? Yeah, or just like, you know, like connect with it somehow. So if I sleep with it, maybe I'll fall in love with it. <laughs> is that how it works? You know, in my experience, yes. Unfortunately, that is how it works. Hey, this is Jaffa, Jaffa G Photography. Uh, I had a couple of cameras that I have a couple of cameras that I regret selling. One was a Nikon FE uh, with a 35 millimeter that I regret uh, selling so much that I contacted the person I sold it to just last month, I sold this two years ago, just last month to see if she would sell it back to me and she she would not. And I had a, a Mamiya 645 Super with had a power winder on it and the hand winder, the uh, overhead focus finder and the metered prism finder, two lenses that I thought, again, I was moving on from to go into large format. And now I wish I still had that camera. I made a Solid work on both of those cameras that I should never have let go. Thanks a lot. That's an interesting moral dilemma. If you if you sell a camera to somebody and then a few years later, you want that camera back, obviously you're not entitled to it. And obviously he didn't think he was. But would you, as the the new owner of the camera, would you feel compelled to sell it back? Yes. I think I would too. I don't I don't um, think it's like necessarily the right answer. No, but. it's not. Uh I share everything of mine usually. Uh so I before I give anything away cuz I give like shit away all the time, but I'm also like, hey, like I really like this, so like if I want to borrow it or just like have it for a little bit, can I like visit with it and everybody's like, yeah, totally. Or like I'll give like clothes to my friends that are like vintage pieces and I'm like, just wear it, love it, enjoy it. But when I remember, I want it back. <laughs> <laughs> and they know that it's their clothes for the rest of their lives because you won't remember. Basically. Or if like it's small and Marley's going to fit into it soon, then I'll like mention it. But sure. yeah, that's it. But Java, Java, like I literally have two Nikon FEs because I was gifted one from someone who like passed away. Um, it was his mother's camera. And uh, so I'm going to keep that one. So I think I have, I'm pretty sure I have a, another one. Uh, oh, cool. So you should DM me because I got you. Ancillary Adams here uh, from Instagram. 
I really haven't sold any cameras that I regret selling. What I do regret, however, is breaking my Holga that I had, which basically got me back into film photography. Been meaning to get another one, but I just haven't yet. So I need to remedy that. Otherwise, honestly, I've probably given more cameras away than I have sold. But none of them I regret. Well, Vanya, do you have a Holga that you <laughs> I can might give have? To? So I... <laughs> I might have a Holga that that you can have, <laughs> or at least borrow for a very long time until I feel like I want to have it back, which might not be ever. <laughs> and honestly, that last sentence that you've, you might have given more cameras away than sold is probably um, the most amazing sentence of all. Um, I am lucky enough to have people say, you like film photography and give me cameras. And in turn, I tell them I take these cameras and I give them to people that either want to learn like photography or film photography, whatever. So um, I just gave a camera to like a 16-year-old kid who's super excited about photography and I gave him a bunch of film. And it's just like, it's one of my favorite things to do. Aww. And um, it is so much better than selling a stupid camera to someone to just be able to, like, give somebody something. I sold my Leica M2 to Vince, who uh, is Vince Shoots Film. I missed it so much, I bought it back. And then I sold it back to him. And then I bought it back again. So I regretted selling that one. But luckily, I still have it. That's perfect. It's kind of like... They just share it. It's a share it, camera. It's a shared camera. They, they exchange cash and <laughs> and cameras, really. Yeah. So, do you think that the, the price stayed the same? I would think so. The price pretty much stayed the same each time, except when we added new lenses to the transaction, and then it would go up a little bit. But I still got it for way less than what the uh, M2 is going for right now. Well, if he, if he sells it again and Vince won't sell it back... Do you have a Leica that he could that he could uh, have? I, no, I do not. Sorry, <laughs> okay. that's the, there's just a couple cameras that I was like, you know what? I'll just let everybody else have these. I don't I don't need to get into it. You know, that's and, another question we should maybe ask someday. Which camera yeah. do you just not fucking want? Yeah, <laughs> which camera is a good camera, but it's just like fuck that. Yeah, I just don't want to deal with like the craziness of yeah. it. And even like the the Bessa people, you know, are like, oh God, it's just too much. I'm sorry. I love you guys, but no, you can have them. It's better. It's better this way for both of us. <laughs> I thought of three cameras immediately and two of them I ended up taking off my list um, because one, I traded the camera for some lenses and I still use the lenses. So, okay. Another one, I actually dropped off my camera from high school at a thrift store once and like 10 years later um i found it again not the same camera but the same brand an ae1p and so i feel like the universe gave me a do-over but my biggest regret and i ended up just giving it to a goodwill was my polaroid sx70 and i feel like some of that is just out of actual just spite 
because they stopped making the film and people have talked about it on the show i mean i was crushed it was my favorite camera and i feel like polaroid just took that from me and don't they still make the film for the sx70 i mean technically yes we should just all agree that keep that on the down low okay let's just not tell them let's just not tell them I mean, honestly, it's still an impossible project. But but it's Polaroid now. <laughs> the SX-70 is like the Corvette or Lamborghini that was on my fucking wall when I was eight years old. And yes, I was a girl with a Corvette or a Ferrari on my wall. That Polaroid was just sleek and sexy. One of my favorite 80s memories is the commercials for the SX-70 where Tawny Katane was doing cartwheels and splits on it. It was just beautiful with the rain pouring all over it and White Snake playing in the background. It it really made the SX-70 for me. Hello, everybody. This is Sarah Leopold, Sarah Leopold photo on Instagram. And I guess my answer is I have a really flex that I don't regret not getting rid of because I almost did. Um, I shot my really flex for about six years. And then when I had the opportunity to get a Hasselblad, I was very torn about it. I wasn't sure if I should get another square format camera no, did I really need it? Um, and I talked to a lot of people, and some people reminded me that um, other people shoot two by three ratio cameras, and they have multiple of the same ratio. So why should I worry about shooting two square format cameras? So I just got both, and I definitely do not regret it. Sometimes you don't need to get rid of a camera, which yeah. is okay. Yeah. I mean, who, who makes the rules? Well, we try. <laughs> we, have, we have some of the rules. Let's be honest. We do, make, we do make some of the rules. I guess, but it's like, I don't know. I don't understand the whole, like, minimalist, like, thing. Oh, I know you don't. I think it's ridiculous and for rich people. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're you're definitely right there. Yeah, it's just it's so weird and like pretentious. Like Sarah is amazing at square format. I would say she should get every single square f- format camera she wants because she's fucking good at it. <laughs> Obviously, if she wants to like do other format, of course, I support that as well. I have a different take. These cameras are part of history. They are not going to be made ever again. And if they are, they'll never be made the same or as well as they used to be. They're only going to last as long as we keep them and take care of them. So yeah, it's great to trade off and try new things, but also too, like, you know, why? Why can't you have two? Now, when we asked the question on on Instagram, I was I was very curious to see who would answer and not like, you know, not leave us a voice message and see what those answers would be. And the more, majority of them were, I'm never getting rid of a camera. And I, I'm very happy that Danielle, girl with too many cameras, chimed in saying, well, this is an easy one for me. I haven't, I've never gotten rid of a camera. Nice. Ugh. And I believe it. But also there was a, there was a, Another message left by um, DV over DT. 
Um, he says to Dave the Walker, uh, who says, I don't remember getting rid of a camera on purpose. He's given a few away. That's what Dave said. Okay. And in, in reply, Tim says, that's the key, isn't it? Just give them away. I'm doing my best Tim impersonation here. <laughs> I've given several away as gifts. No regrets. The only ones I sold were digitals. Adios. And no, no regrets to those either. So yeah, I think we've gotten away a little bit from giving away cameras. Mm-hmm. I think the idea, when film photography first started getting a little more popular, I think the idea of going into a thrift store and buying an armload of point-and-shoots, some shitty, some really good, and selling them and flipping them on, on eBay has really kind of poisoned us to the idea that, hey, you can just give away cameras. It's okay to do that. Yeah. And I know we've railed about that that thrift store flipping thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I can't stand it. It drives me insane. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of shitty, what is the next question for the next episode? This one we kind of decided the other night, right? We we did. I can't remember why. There was there was definitely something that we started talking about and we're like, oh, why not this? Yeah. 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 That's I, interesting. I like this. And if anybody needs help, just let me know. <laughs> Because I still don't really know, maybe. Uh, the next question is, what advice would you give your younger photographic self? We've all learned a, a, a quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So um, why not uh, just tell us what you would tell yourself? Yeah. Since we've come back in January, as you'll know, we, we've been trying out different, what we call front segments, mm-hmm. little little bits. The first time it was music. We talked about some songs that were about photography or photography adjacent. The second time, last episode, it was, the fuck was it, Vanya? <laughs> Do you remember? It was advice. Advice. Gosh, That's it was right. that memorable. <laughs> I guess not. And this time around, we will be talking about a movie that has inspired us, or one of us, in this case, Vanya, to, uh, has inspired us in a photographic way. Movies are visual, and mm-hmm. you know what? So is photography. Maybe that's a coincidence. I don't know. We'll look into it sometime. <laughs> so, Vanya, which movie have you picked? I thought about this one for a long time because I really wanted to make sure it was uh, something that relates to right now. Um, as much as there's like a million movies that <laughs> I can think of, I wanted just something that has been kind of stuck with me lately. And that just so happens to be um, My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. So Yeah, it's nominated for an Oscar. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you guys have Netflix, you should, if you haven't seen it, you should see it because it's absolutely incredible it's <laughs> i watched it again even though i remember how emotional i was the first time i watched it um i did watch it again and basically it's um this filmmaker who is diving the kelp forest with like in south africa and this is like cold water so not only is he diving and like photographing underwater, but he's also kind of (laughs) learning how to um, kind of calm his body down and control himself in a way that he can stand the coldness of the water. 
right? Now, the water you dive in, that, would that be considered warm water? I would say it's fairly warm. It's not tropical, but okay. um, as soon as you get down like 10 feet or so, it gets colder and colder and colder. And I okay. would rather wear a wetsuit sure. unless it's like summer. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's, it gets pretty cold down there for sure. Um, okay. But yeah, so he basically meets this female octopus and <laughs> becomes friends with it. I know that sounds crazy if you haven't seen it. That's why you need to see the movie. This doesn't have like a, a shape of water uh, feel to it, does it? Never mind. Go on. So there's a couple things that I feel connects this movie to my photography. And the first first thing I can think of is that photographers have a responsibility to give voices to people that cannot be like, cannot tell their story or cannot talk. When I surf, I do not get out of the water until I pick up a piece of trash. And if I didn't find a piece of trash floating in the ocean, I make sure that I pick up a piece of trash when I'm walking to my car. Uh, when I take off my wetsuit, sometimes I forget and a bunch of trash ends up falling outside, like out of my wetsuit because I've tucked it in as, you know, my session for the hour or two that I was out there. It is really important for me t that we protect, obviously, our natural resources and our oceans and our lovely ocean animals. And I think this movie was such a perfect opportunity to show people that maybe just see octopus as food <laughs> and not yeah. as like a living thing with like intelligence and kindness and curiosity. They are highly, highly evolved. Yes. I think we really, really need to evaluate how we treat them and how we eat them mm -hmm. and maybe fucking stop if we can. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're beyond us, but they haven't evolved that to that point. But they are, their intelligence is incredibly high. And I will say a lot of people that enjoy um, certain things like climbers um, or people that surf are doing amazing things for the ocean. I'm not saying that we're not. Not everybody gets to see the ocean. And I can show a picture of the ocean and it can look beautiful. But also I need to remember that I need to show the ugliness of what people can do to the ocean as well. I have this picture that I took many, many years ago, and it has stuck with me. Every time I think of bad things about the ocean, I think of this picture. And it was a seal out on one of the buoys out, like I think it's the K-12 buoy. I think it's like one that's like three or four miles out. He was out there and um, he had a fishing line that was wrapped around his neck so tight that it was had cut his skin and mm. it looked like ha it had been on for so long. And it was absolutely devastating. It was so sad. And I see shit like that all the time. I see like birds, like I've, I've pulled birds like out of the water. I've like called the lifeguard. I've, I've seen these things happen. And it's just like, it's so very sad because it is something that <laughs> doesn't have to happen. Uh, so I took a picture of the seal and I have it. And, um, there, and the reason why I did that was I didn't know what to do at the time. Uh, so I 
emailed the picture when I got reception to someone that comes and actually picks up like seals that are sick. And I had a long conversation with him about it. And I was like, look, like I'm, I see these things like all the time. And he's like, when you see these things, you need to tell me like, or need to report it right away, right when it's happening, because by the time (laughs) I get out there, he might not be there anymore. So, um, yeah. It makes me want to not only enjoy like how beautiful the ocean is and how amazing and alive it is. I want to swim in every single ocean I can possible, of course. Uh, but I also want to remember that like I have a responsibility and I want to not only be able to enjoy the ocean, but I also want Marley to. And if Marley wants to have children, you know, I want them to and the next and the next and the next. So, uh, yeah, that's my pick. Okay. Wonderful pick. Thank you. Uh, uh, we, on our next episode, we will be discussing uh, probably some, are you crying? Are you crying? Oh, are you okay? Yes. Okay. Don't embarrass me. No, no, it's totally okay to cry. Oh, God. Ugh, I'm fine. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, so for the next episode, we will be dipping back into music that is photography adjacent. Who okay. knows what we'll do? I did oh. Depeche Mode last time, and you did... You did Argus. Argus. <laughs> yeah. You did From, Ween. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll work it out. Courtney Coles is a photographer, writer, and professor, born and raised in Los Angeles. Her work centers on the idea of home, even when she's away from it. Her eye for finding the beautiful and important among the everyday and ordinary is honestly inspiring. She has agreed to tell us all about it, so let's give Courtney a call. Hello. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Pretty good. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really Thanks appreciate for it. Me. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, well, let's let's start in. And uh, could you talk a little bit about your life before photography? What, what and what led up to photography for you? I have always had like some kind of camera on me. Um, even in elementary schools, my parents, Polaroids or mm. a disposable camera. The very first time I mentioned, right, like uttered the words, I want to be a photographer was when I was 13. And my parents, I think probably thought like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> Hobby, whatever. <laughs> and so um, they supported that in, you know, getting my first, I guess, digital camera was like this one mega byte, whatever pixel thing. <laughs> shitty thing but it was like in a um it was in this like science catalog of some sort because i was really into astronomy so i was like oh telescopes but wait this camera looks really fun i want this just happily saying it and then christmas that year i got the camera i think i was it was my senior year of high school and i was doing great on the school paper and my teacher told me hey i See, you want to do journalism, you should go to Pierce College, which is like a local community college, because they have the best media arts department in, you know, LA. And I was like, cool, if I'm going to do journalism, I might as well, like, go to the best school. Duh. <laughs> so I went to Pierce and did, I think, one semester um, of, like, on the, not the paper, but, like, the pre 
wrecked to get on the school paper. Mm -hmm. I was still doing photography, this photograph for my friends and bands and everything. And I was just like, I feel like I should probably change my major from journalism to photojournalism. Like, mm -hmm. And so I took my first uh, photo class that winter. Turns out they got rid of their dark room <laughs> the semester oh, no. before I started. <laughs> so I was like, I had my first serious job. I was just like, yes, I'm going to save up money and buy my film camera and blah, blah, blah. And then get to school. And because it said in the catalog, you know, 35 and digital SLR. And I was like, I don't have money for a digital camera I'll just buy an SLR or a film camera <laughs> first day of class like this is an all digital class and I was just like I don't have that and I don't have that kind of money to like you know do it so I was pretty much the only student <laughs> with the film camera <laughs> in my very first photo class but I nailed it at the park I guess and one of the first classes the teacher pulled me aside and he told me, since you're the only person using film and we have like all this expired film in the back, it's <gasps> up, you can use it. And I was like, oh, cool. How much should I pay you for? He's like, it's expired. We can't sell it. Just take as much as you need when you need to. <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> That's a dream story. Yeah, and is. so for my first actually like, full on three years of like photography, like for series, I didn't pay for film because there was a fridge in the back that I was able to kind of like, and do my assignments for so wow. thank you thank you sean for that um <laughs> and so it just kept on going and i eventually was doing the school paper and then the school magazine and then this like radio station and all the while i was like making art i guess on the side and i as much as i love journalism i just hated the rules surrounding the parameters around just like being around people because mm -hmm. it felt so strange to know a lot about a person and then go, all right, bye. Gonna just not keep in touch with you because <laughs> bye. <laughs> so uh, much of your work right now centers around the home. Uh, yeah. How do you define home, especially in a relationship to your photography? Um, so home has been the foundation since like the very beginning, even when I was like a kid. Mm -hmm. And when I did the whole thing in undergrad, I think I – was very I was so homesick so homesick and I was just so eager to leave LA and like go elsewhere go to Portland whatever but I was still just like hungry and like missing my family my friends the sunshine in LA and um I realized that in that you know in that in those moments that home wasn't just like the physical place like Silmar California was just like you know place it was memories it was sense it was like notes you know just like things like that and I realized oh wow home isn't just like the house you grew up in it can be like the way a friend hugs you or like the way someone's hair smells in the wind or whatever and so um my work now versus work then is kind of like building on those ideas of what home is and can be and also was like I'm seeing now like I'm moving towards building memories and not just like photographic things as they kind of are mm -hmm. and it took a long time for me to come to a place where I felt comfortable actually setting up a scene and not just like oh I woke up and I felt like this like oh no we've we're drawing it out we're writing down little bubbles of what things could be and like how this can pretty much reference an older image that you made like a bazillion years ago mm -hmm. and so um home now is currently just like how I exist in my own space since I'm so far from everyone again because of COVID. Mm -hmm. On Instagram, everything is so perfectly yeah. thought out and maybe it is thought out how you're doing it, but it it's different because it's like 
there's there's realness there. You sleep in that bed. You didn't like yeah. steam <laughs> and like steam iron it. everything and like yeah. fluff it up and make it fantastic. You know, yeah. it has like this this lived in like loved and comfortable um, feeling. And with the color film too, it's just warm and beautiful. I don't know. I it reminds me of like a couple photographers. So what I wanted to ask you is like, was there any photographers that have influenced you? Yes. So just like tap onto the bed stuff. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> I think I've been photographing beds forever, probably since undergrad, but it they it was like a nod to Tammy Ray Carlin, who's a photographer. I think she's in Oakland or San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Maybe she moved, but she has a series called uh, Lesbian Beds. And this was before I even came out. I was just like so far deep in the closet, just like not even... I was just existing. Mm-hmm. But I was still like influenced by all these queer artists. So I was like, wow, that's so cool. That's so amazing. But the series, she photographed her friends, their beds. And like, I think it's called Lesbian Bed Death or Lesbian Beds. And it's talking about lesbian bed death, which is a term in which you're with your partner for so long that you just stop having sex. Because that's what mm-hmm. happens, I guess, when you're like living together. And so this, I think, which is more of a kind of like a homage, like, you know, her friends of, Nope, we're still together. Like there's no there's no death in this bed. It's we're great. And I think I started just documenting my bed before even knowing about the series as mm-hmm. a way of like I was too shy to make self-portraits. Like I just I mean, I did the whole like MySpace thing. Sure. But I think when it came to like, art, I was just like, I don't want to be art. Like, but my bed can be <laughs> my <laughs> bed can be art. And so I like photographed my first uh college bed and then when I moved out that bed as well like my bedroom and everything mm-hmm. because I was working on this or working through these ideas of your bedroom being like an extension of who you are as a person and how that is essentially you know it could be a self-portrait and so in finding Tammy Ray's Carlin's work I was just like whoa that's so amazing how like this is like a portrait of her friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the whole thing. Yeah. So I tacked on to that by like, you know, photographing my friends in their bedrooms and having them either on their bed and also just, you know, without them on their beds. It's just like a photograph of their, you know, their space, they sleep and eat and make love and everything. Mm-hmm. And so with my bed series, it's a mixture of my bed, but also like beds I've been in with partners and lovers or just like beds of, um, I think it was a bed in my my grandmother's bed in um, the mix, maybe. But it was just more so like ways to kind of make a portrait without having someone's physical body in these spaces. And also, um, my partner, camera shy, and so I'm thinking like, how can I photograph our time together without being annoying? He's like, okay, <laughs> photograph of the bed. And in general, I'm definitely a student of Nan Golden. Um, Carrie Mae Weems, Latoya Ruby Frazier, mm-hmm. they all just, again, before even having the words to describe my work or why I was doing what I was doing, I essentially was, was making the images they were making way back when mm-hmm. and um, not feeling like I was arty enough and like didn't have enough art to speak to like back up my anything. It felt so amazing to find artists who are photographing their friends and their immediate community in a way that was just like if I don't do it who will and so yeah. it's nice to have that you know 10 20 years later with me it's like oh no if I don't do it who will like 
it's so hard. I think as photographers, I think we like always feel like it needs to be over the top for it to be good and really like just realness. Uh, so one of your most striking portraits is of your mother. It's uh, August 2018, Stone Mountain, Georgia. You photographed her regularly for years. How does she feel about that? At first, she hated it. <laughs> like, I'm going to pretend she like, loved it. She disliked it a lot. Mm-hmm. It was my way of kind of being present without being present because she was in the hospital and knew that I needed to photograph her because if I hadn't, I would have definitely just like forgot the entire thing because it was traumatic. I think I was photographing her while I was in undergrad, but I wasn't showing anyone the images because, again, I didn't think it was art. I just thought like, oh, it's my way of remembering what's happening. This isn't like for homework or like a project. <laughs> it just felt so like that's not what this is. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who we were at school and he like peered over my computer. He was like, these are amazing photographs. Like, why aren't you bringing this into the crit space? And I was like, because it's not our IP. Like, my mom, <laughs> like, I don't talk about. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, but if you don't, you know, bring this into like the crit space, you won't learn how to actually talk about this mm-hmm. keep photographing things you don't care about you'll get good at photographing things you don't care about and so let us help you kind of thing and so with everything I do I always ask the people in the photographs can I show this to other people because I think it has to be the journalist in me like making sure everybody is okay <laughs> with things <laughs> existing and so I asked her and then I think she was very much against it and then I told her, you know, the reason why I was doing it. I'm like, well, I'm doing it because, you know, there's a whole stigma against like after, I think at the time I said like after 30, no one cares about women, especially black women. And I want people to know that you're so beautiful to me. Like, I love you. And there is life after kids and like all these things. And then she was like, okay, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was the thing. And again, I wasn't really thinking in terms of like art. People are going to love this. I just thought it was like, it's my mom. I am trying to repair a friendship slash relationship that I thought I ruined when I was a kid. And this is my way of going, I want to hang out with you without saying, hey, mom, I want to hang out. And so I started winning scholarships at school <laughs> with these photographs and like having solo shows and stuff at school. And it went from like, don't photograph me to, wow, you have all these things because of me. Like, <laughs> like okay, mom, calm down. But it was like, great because it, I saw this sparkle in her eye that like she felt like, oh, I'm you care about me. You love me. Like, this is a thing. Uh, so you did do another project, Public Confessions, where you used photo booths as sort of a diary. Why the photo booths, you know, instead of just a camera or like a phone or whatever? It seems obviously more difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's a, lot of, it's a lot more planning. And I think I was burnt out from photography, like actual camera holding. At first, it was just a way of like, you know, having something else that wasn't like a camera and more like a, let me just go to this old school little little box thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, it grew into like an actual serious obsessive project. And I didn't know why I was seeking out the photo booth and in particular, you know, why an analog booth until um, grad school mm-hmm. and that was probably five years into the project and I once again was tired of talking about my parents my family and like making making serious art I was scanning some of my photo strips and I had realized that a big chunk of them had like I wouldn't say dead eyes but like 
it's just I look tired, but like not just tired, but just there's something there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in probably November of 2017 ish was when I saw like a sparkle in my eyes, and I had I like, sat for a hot second thinking like what does this like what is this like, what is what happened in November because if I remember correctly that was when I had like my first big meltdown in grad school like oh my god what am I doing like why am I here like <laughs> this is traumatic dear lord it was a bit that went too far like I got it and what that's oh my god and then I realized that was when I came out to myself as just like at the time bisexual. And it was just to myself, didn't tell anyone. I was just like trying to figure out, you know, do I like this? Is this like a word for me? Because I came up before many years ago, but ah. And then I realized the photoships after that, even though I was definitely very sad, there was still like, you know, life behind my eyes. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I fully came out, the life in my eyes, and I realized the booth was acting as his confessional. So I figured I'm confessing something to this, you know, this camera, this lens, mm-hmm. and like asking it questions that I don't know the answers to. And then I'm seeing like, oh, the booth called me out before I called myself out. And it was yeah. documenting me through this journey of like, you know, with, because in some of the photo strips, I'm with dudes, we're making out, whatever. It's just like a whole thing. Like I can see that like the booth is like, that's cute, but also like, Come on, like <laughs> yeah, you're asking me to show you a mirror, and I am. You're not looking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Jesus. I think I offhandedly mentioned, oh, it's like a safe space for queers, without realizing, like, oh, that that's true. Like, there are a lot of people who like use the photo booth as their way to document their love <laughs> with their partner or their friends without having to have their cameras sent to the lab or whatever. Have someone kind of like meddling in their business. Mm-hmm. A queer elder pulled me aside at an event and then they're like, no, that's what you said. There's some truth to that because my friends and I in the 70s, all of our fridges were covered in these photo strips. And that was like the one thing we all had were Polaroids and photo strips of us together because we couldn't send the cameras off to whoever. Well, you've recently started teaching intro to photography. Yes. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, what's it like digging back into the basics for you? Oh my God, it's so wild. (laughs) It was my second semester and last semester it quite literally every class was a new thing because making the lectures and everything, I forgot that it was called the exposure triangle (laughs) because it's been like 15 years. (laughs) And so (laughs) when I'm like making the slides, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's so true. Like it is, it's, it is a triangle. Like, yeah, <laughs> my whole just, yeah. So I tell my students last semester, I, up until like last week, have forgotten it was called the exposure triangle. And they're like, what? I'm like, it's been a lot of years. I haven't <laughs> had to call it anything official mm-hmm. since I was a young one. Like no one asks you for it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's been wild to like go back to the basics and, the things I do out of just muscle memory, it's it's been so fun to go back and go like, okay, but how do you slow it down and make it make sense to someone who isn't already doing this? And mm-hmm. how do you make it fun for non-photo majors? Because it's, it's intro class and yeah. it's like an art credit. So it's like, how can I make it useful, one, for the photo majors, but also interesting enough for the non-photo majors? Mm-hmm. And so far, even though it's been two semesters, 
I think just being relatable and honest <laughs> about everything has been the thing that's helped. Um, and also doing what I, as a student, responded well to, which was just professors, again, being honest about like, this is what it is in the real world and not just like, and here's how you do a shutter. No, no one, we can all read that, but like they're in these classes to hear it in human language and not just the technical form yeah, of yeah. absolutely what have you. So my assignments have been a lot of it's just been intuitive of like, okay, here's what I want you to use, like the settings, but do not overthink it from anything else. Just like here is the F stop. Mm-hmm. And from there, figure out the shutter speed. There's no math involved. Just keep moving until you get a little green dot and we'll talk about it in class. <laughs> we'll talk about it in class. <laughs> because I, and also I'm trying to make assignments that are very loosely ended because nothing stinks more than spending so much money on film and making photographs that you can't use anywhere else. <laughs> like I'm thinking back to all the photo classes I had and how absolutely none of those photos could be used for any of my projects because I'm not an abstract photographer. Like I don't. Yeah. Most of my students are very much into photographing their friends and their family. So it's like, how dare I go? All right, make some abstract looking. It's like, no, give them the basics. And then from mm-hmm. there, how can you fit in landscape? How can you fit in what yeah. it's like to make a portrait without making a portrait? Like, what does that look like without it being so far out of everyone's interest? Because then they'll be making photographs they don't care about. Yeah. And they're spending money on the paper in the film and they're like i don't care about this but here we go for critique it's yeah it's been fun to like make it make sense in a way where they're like oh now that makes it's like yes now go forth with your digital camera and do the same thing if you want to (laughs) great so you can follow courtney at kearney flakes on instagram and she also has a website that we'll have posted so if you guys want to check out her work it's absolutely stunning definitely uh, give her a follow and look at it and <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and talking with us it's been like i don't know it's wonderful just oh thank absolutely you. lovely yeah, really to it know <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You have a good uh, rest of your, your evening and um, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Imogene Cunningham photographed for nearly 75 years. Throughout her long career, she allowed herself to be influenced by the friends she made throughout the photography community. There isn't really a single thread running through her work that you could look at and think, this is what makes a photo a Cunningham. And yet, she was not without her own style and philosophy, though both changed throughout the years. In one way, she was a sponge soaking up all the inspiration she could find. And in another, she was a scavenger, feasting on the work of others put out before her, but doing almost everything they did better. She was a photographic anarchist, holding herself to no stringent set of rules while playing within and around traditions, rule sets, good taste, and expectations. And that's where this all gets interesting. Imogene Cunningham was born in Portland, Oregon in 1883 to parents who would have been seen as hippies a few generations later. They were vegetarians, spiritualists, and free thinkers. 
After moving to a commune near Port Angeles, Washington, they moved to a small forest house atop Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. There, seven-year-old Anne took art lessons and dodged the occasional bear on her way to school. Following high school, she enrolled in the University of Washington. At first, she studied shorthand and typing, working her own way through school as a secretary of her chemistry professor. It had always been her desire to create pictures and took an interest in photography early on. Though by her sophomore year, she still didn't own a camera. I always liked the pictorial. In my second year in college, I told one of my professors that I wanted eventually to be a photographer. And I asked him, what should I study? Chemistry, by all means. He said. Learn scientific photography. And I applied myself in that direction. The following year, she had saved up enough money to buy a 4x5 view camera from the American School of Art and Photography in Scranton, Pennsylvania, a correspondence school offering a course in photography through the mail. She shot her first photo in 1905, a blurry picture of a marsh near campus with the sun rising over Lake Washington. With her interest growing in that direction, her father was cranky. I can't see what all that studying at the university will do if you're just going to be a dirty photographer. Despite his ornery musings, he built for her a darkroom from the woodshed on their property under the light of a candle in a red box tucked away in a tar paper lined shed. She applied her chemistry education with her art inclination and became a scientific photographer. Back in school, she graduated early, writing her thesis on the modern process of photography. She also studied the portrait work of Edward S. Curtis, a Seattle photographer most famous for his multi-volume set of photographs of Native Americans. It was through this study that she got her first job, working in Edward Curtis's studio. And it was there that her life began to change. Though working in the studio, she almost never saw its namesake. Edward Curtis was such a big shot in his own mind that he seldom ever turned up in the studio. And if he did, he never spoke to the help. The man who influenced my life at the time was A.F. Moore. He was the operator of the Curtis establishment, and he was a gentleman from way back. Also, a fine technician. It was Murr who took her education and darkroom experience and turned it into an exacting science, teaching her how to etch prints and retouch negatives. And while Murr gave her the foundations she needed to work on a commercial lab, it was the connection to the larger photographic community that set her off on her first explorations of photography as art. It was there, through the magazine The Craftsman, that she discovered the work by Gertrude Cosbeer, a sort of female Edward Curtis. She photographed Native Americans, though focused more on them as real people, as opposed to Curtis's own more selfish style. But it was Cosbeer's photos of motherhood that caught Imogene's eye. There was a softer focus to them, wringing more emotion out of the scenes. Imogen was also exposed to Alfred Stieglitz's Camera Work magazine. This was a regular publication that featured the work of the photo secession movement. They were what was known as pictorialists, a photographic philosophy that paid much more attention to the art rather than the science, though when compared to today, the science played a pretty huge role in it. Typically, their photographs were emotional and very soft focus, or just plain out of focus. They looked very much like Imogene's first photo, the one in the marsh near campus. She began writing the managing editor and was soon introduced to many of the photographers gracing its pages. At the end of her time with Curtis Studio in 1909, she received a grant from her old sorority and a loan from the Washington Women's Club of Seattle 
to travel to Germany and study photographic processing. And so, with the art of the pictorialist dancing in her heart, she filled her mind with the science that could bring those photographs to life. With her new 5x7 camera, gifted to her by a fellow worker at the studio, she packed a steamer trunk and was off, eventually arriving in Dresden. There, she studied under air doctor Robert Luther, publishing a paper titled About Self-Production of Platinum Papers for Brown Tones. It was an attempt to lower the cost of platinum printing, which can be ridiculously expensive. She had grown up poor and was still poor, and it was the state she'd never fully leave. And this would inform the entire body of her work. Apart from the chemistry, she also discovered a method she'd used to take portraits. One day in Dresden, she wished to take a portrait of Air Doctor. He agreed, but gave a suggestion. Now, I want to do a mathematical problem in my mind, and when you think I've come to the point of greatest intensity of thought, take my picture then. Sometimes people get embarrassed about being photographed, she'd later say. I tell them to think about the nicest thing they know. I think that makes a difference. Some people don't think it does. Sometimes people think about nothing at all, and it's hard to get an interesting photograph that way. On her way home, she stopped off in New York to visit Alfred Stieglitz's gallery. She met the man, but found him intimidating. She also met Gertrude Cosbier, whom she found to be very friendly. Part of her fell in love with New York, but she understood that she could never afford to live there. Finally, back in Seattle in September of 1910, she stayed at her parents' house while opening up an art studio in a cottage on First Hill, which soon also turned into her own little home. Due to the slope of the hill, it rested almost under the sidewalk. It was surrounded by maple trees and had a small garden. Inside, it was primitive. There were a few old rugs hanging as backdrops and almost no furniture to speak of. And yet, the light was amazing. And outside in the garden would be perfect for photography. Her niche was what she termed as expressive portraits. And she was the only one in the city undertaking this style. She'd also make house calls, bringing her eye and her 5 by 7 to the parlors of anyone willing to sit. But it wasn't just sitting. These were no ordinary photographs. The photographer, she thought, must be able to gain an understanding at short notice and close range of the beauties of character, intellect, and spirit, so as to be able to draw out the best qualities and make them show in the outer aspect of the sitter. To do this, one must not have a too pronounced notion of what constitutes beauty in the external, and above all, must not worship it. To worship beauty for its own sake is narrow, and one surely cannot derive from it that aesthetic pleasure which comes from finding beauty in the commonest of things. Outside of her studio work, Imogen's photography flowed more towards the Victorian, with some earthy similarities to Julia Margaret Cameron. My friends and I would go out to the country, dress up in costumes, and just have fun. She'd later recall. With her compact, soft-focus, Pinkman Smith lens, she'd capture dreamy images of her friend Claire Shepard, and then regal spoofs of brothers Ben and John Butler. For two years, she'd spend her free time with them, photographing many, many glass plates. She also photographed her friends in the nude, not an incredibly rare thing for photographers at the time, except that some of these friends were men. This was considered more than taboo, even within the photographic community. Other photographers, like Anne Brigman, were photographing nudes, though not males. 
but most were cleverly incorporating them into the landscapes. Brigman especially situated her models to contour with the twisted trees around them. Imogen took that influence, but crafted the photos in her own way. She moved the nudes from being one with the landscape to placing them kind of within the landscape or on top of the landscape. Her photos were not of a nude body in nature, but were more of like nudes who happened to be in nature. In 1912, one of her photos of three small boys with a model sailboat was published, but the following year she published a feminist essay entitled Photography as a Profession for Women. It urged women not to compete with men, but to do something on their own, essentially without men, a sentiment echoed by the Kodak girls, though this was intended for them to move beyond the snapshot. Imogen understood that her use of nudity was confrontational. She understood the shock value of it and reveled in it like some early 1900s Alice Cooper. I think I'll get busy and do a shocker, she once wrote. Miss C suggests today that I photograph her nude with Tanaka dressed. She was beginning to build around her a small community of artists and began showing them her work in hopes of a show or publication. In April of 1913, she and Claire had a show in Imogene's Terry Avenue studio. The following year, Wilson's Photographic Magazine published an issue featuring her work and an introduction by photographer Alvin Langdon Coburn. It was during this period of work when she began writing to George Roy Partridge. Roy, for short, a Seattle artist who was traveling abroad studying in Paris. He was friends with the Butler brothers and Claire. She helped him organize his etchings and drawings for a show before he left for Europe. They fell madly in love, especially Roy, who would write long and gushing love letters referring to Imogene in the third person, saying things like, Underlaying all this, however, is that want, that emptiness, that incompleteness. I must have my mate. I want her now. And it was in this weird way that he proposed marriage. She accepted and he begged her to come to Europe. Come, sweet. The sun's afire, and there are such wondrous lands to explore. Love and time and Italy. But it was 1914, and Gabriella Princip had just killed Archduke Ferdinand, and then the Germans were in France when they really should have been in Germany, and the whole of Europe was at war. Roy wandered home, and the two were married in an artist studio at the end of the year. The first year or so of their marriage was pretty perfect. They spent their time exploring the Pacific Northwest, drawing and photographing the rugged terrain. For this time, Roy was her model, bathing naked in the glacial lakes of Mount Rainier. He was Narcissus, poised bare ass on a sheet of ice as the bather. This photo was published in Seattle's Town Crier the following year. It caused such a controversy that she bundled up and hid all of the nude negatives away, where they would remain essentially forgotten for more than 50 years. And then came the children. First, in December of 1916, came a son, Griffith. And in Griffith's first summer, Roy went off on his own to Mount Rainier to sketch. This left Imogene a single mother. From the first, it wore on her. She wrote Roy, I have been swamped, trying to do the necessary errands, Rosso's packet, your canteen, and my prince to the London salon. Together, with the attempt to finish the Thompson order. The eternal little slavey jobs eat up all my energy so that I have not a pleasant idea in my head. Doesn't this sound sordidly domestic? And you are probably soaring in the clouds upon the mountains. He was. The time away from her own photography wasn't all dark, however. She had discovered Vanity Fair, then a magazine published by Condé Nast, which featured quite a bit of photography. 
Roy came home for the winter, and by early the following year, Imogen was pregnant again. This time around, she was sick for much of it, weak and always tired. Roy was away, this time in California, for four months, and in letters he complained that Imogene was lacking affection. I have spent so much time in the dark room. She replied to his complaints. Your mother came at three and took Griffith for a walk. I hardly had time to speak to her because I had to get two of my morning prints dry and flat and spotted and get the others finished before an expected caller at four. If you were as sick as a dog in the way I am sick, you couldn't think of affection either. I'm sorry, but the presence of Griffith is the only thing that gets a rise out of me. I haven't cared to love for the last two weeks. Following three fires in the studio cottage, and with Roy being entirely absent but for letters, Imogene had enough. She decided to move to California, near where her parents had moved, so that they could watch Griffith while she worked and dealt with her difficult pregnancy. Roy was furious and complained that he was about to go on another sketching trip when he heard the news and wrote, I am more distressed than I am able to say by this fresh misfortune. You have no consideration, as usual, for where I come in. On her own, she put Roy's prints and press into storage and took apart her studio. By far the heaviest items to move were her hundreds of glass negatives. Rather than haul them, she spent the evening breaking them, one by one, over the edge of a trash can before tossing them inside. The ones she had printed were saved, but almost everything else was shards. When she and Griffith arrived in San Francisco, Roy was there to meet them. Things seemed almost right as she gave birth again. The doctor said, you're going to have one big fat girl. I had two skinny boys. Roy worked for an advertising firm and taught at Mills College while Imogen was swamped with the domestic life of raising her three sons, Griffith and the twins, Rondell and Padriac. She'd photographed them when she could, but could do little more. She still found time to look at the new camera works issues and began to think more about modernist photography through her old friend Alvin Coburn. Vanity Fair was also leaning in that direction, and Imogen was keen to lean with it. Still, as she put it, she had one hand in the dishpan, the other in the darkroom. She had also become friends with photographers Maynard Dixon and Dorothea Lang. Edward Weston and Marguerite Mather soon followed. She and Roy began exhibiting the work of their new friends at Mills College, and finally, in 1921, she was working again. Imogen was commissioned to shoot a ballet troupe. As the subjects lent themselves to this, she fell back on her pictorialist roots, though this would be the last time she did so. Her heart was now firmly shifted from the fuzzy glow of the decade before to the stark modernist, nearly abstract objective harshness of the precisionists she had lately surrounded herself with. These portraits taken of friends, just like she did back in Seattle, showed how she had grown as a photographer. Except now, there was a sharpness, a clarity that was purposely missing before. Her work from the early 20s shows a transition from old to new. The subjects were, for the most part, familiar. There are portraits, there's lounging, there's friendship. But there is also the new, shadows and the abstract. With pictorialism, everything seemed draped in shadow, with light slowly diffused throughout. Her new modernist style very purposely placed both shadow and light in their proper places. There was an obvious intention. She was now completely in control, at least of her own work. To make ends meet, she took student photographs of the women at Mills College. She hated it, but the pay was fine. 
Some of the students themselves were up for more challenging work, often nudes incorporating a closer and more intimate composition, as well as a deliberate use of shadows. She then moved to plants. For years, she photographed magnolia flowers, lilies, and agave. In a way, they're comparable to Georgia O'Keeffe's paintings, but Imogen would not see those until the next decade. It seems that she was once again influenced by those directly around her. Margaret Mather was also photographing plants at this time, though the two styles differed greatly, with Imogen's delving into the shadows while Mather's were bathed in light. The latter part of the 20s saw Imogen moving in two directions, both away from plants. First, she was rediscovering the human body. Obviously based upon her work with Flora, she continued the small bit of work she did with the college students a few years prior. There was no hearkening back to the days of Roy skinny dipping on Mount Rainier, though Roy still made an appearance or two. It was now sharp lines and abstract positions. The entire frame was filled with arms and legs, ears and eyes. And it was here where she produced her most famous nude, triangles. A close shot of a woman seated and curled up with the breast in profile and an arm and a leg crossed just inside the frame. These images of bodies were once again influenced by her friends, and now she was also acting as influence to them. There was an exchange going on between them all, Edward Weston and Marguerite Mather, among others. Imogen also began to explore the oil industry and industrial landscapes through the eyes of precisionism, a new movement flying off the coattails of cubism. It was all geometry, and she tested the waters, though wandered off before fully embracing it. By the end of the 20s, Imogene seemed to be nearing another change. She found herself exploring ghost towns, photographing dilapidated barns and outhouses. She was beginning to see that photography did not need to be bound to the traditions of painting or art. This is probably obvious to us now, but then it was not. All of the styles and movements that Imogene had been taken by were fundamentally based upon paintings and artistic traditions. She was looking for something new. Following a retrospective show of her work in 1931, she met dancer Martha Graham, whom she photographed extensively in one long session, exposing 90 sheets. Vanity Fair, the very magazine that started Imogene on her path, published two of them. Vanity Fair also gave her a trial assignment of photographing Hollywood celebrities. For the next few years, she made the trip from San Francisco to Los Angeles to shoot Spencer Tracy, James Cagney, Cary Grant, and the beautiful Joan Blondale. Ah. Uh. It was around this time that a few Bay Area photographers like Ansel Adams and Sonia Noskowiak, along with Edward Weston, were reconsidering Aperture. This sounds wonderfully boring, but it was revolutionary at the time. Large format cameras generally have Aperture settings from f5.6 to f64. With the wide open aperture of f5.6, the photographer gets the full effects of the lens, including the shallow depth of field and accompanying swirly bokeh. At f64, however, the lens loses almost all of its personality along with the shallow depths of field. The swirls and the blurs are replaced by focus. Almost everything is in focus at the same time. With a slight tilt to the front standard, that focus becomes absolute. This notion-founded group f64 took that level of purity to more stringent levels. The crisp photos captured by the tight aperture were uncropped, unmanipulated, and always contact printed. There was no enlargement, no etching, or retouching. Everything was pure as the photographer could make it. Imogen was technically a founding member of this small, short-lived, but influential group. She shot a bit in that vein and participated in a group show but the rules were too exacting and restrictive for her, whose eye was always onto the next thing. And the next thing was, unfortunately, life. 
With her travels to Los Angeles and her exhibitions and shows, she was having more and more difficulty maintaining a happy home life. The kids were mostly grown at this point, and now Imogen wanted to do something broader with her work and with her life. When Vanity Fair called in 1934 asking her to work in New York for a time, Roy was over it. She found herself in the position of asking Roy if he could allow her to work. She was over it too, and simply left. En route to New York, Imogene wrote to Roy, I am sure you are bitter about my methods of working my exit, but with your attitude of mind, nothing else was physically possible for me. I begged too many times for cooperation and permission. I cannot get myself straightened out through idleness. I have never really learned to play, and if I did want to play, I could not afford to. The work part only makes the going easier, because I will not become involved in debt, and it will cost you no actual money. I assure you, I do not value myself so highly as a photographer as you seem to think, but neither could I venture a field unless... I had some confidence in my own ability. Only through putting myself through it, as it were, can I really think I am worth anything to you or the family. Try not to forget that I have always really done the essentials. I have always been at home after school when the children came. Try not to forget that I've always really done the essentials. I have always been home after school when the children came, that my work has not been as distracting as most wives' occupational bridge, that I had always the hope that in place of going down in the scale of worthwhileness and achievement as most housefrows do, that I was going up. I really thought I had the right of an adult to undertake an obligation. I never thought for a moment that a person so liberal in all else would deny me this. Nearly two decades of bile flowed from her pen, filling pages. Roy received the letter and filed for divorce. She would have to deal with that when she returned to California. For the time being, she was back in New York where she would remain for a month, photographing all over the city. On a visit to Alfred Stieglitz's gallery, she photographed this once intimidating figure with his own 8x10. Before returning to the West Coast, she visited with her old friend John Butler, whose family had moved to Virginia, living in a small farm in the country. Imogene was taken by the rural setting and its people, and she photographed all she could. Upon her arrival in San Francisco, the divorce was finalized, these 19 years undone. What was next for her had already begun. While in New York, she took what she called her first stolen picture, an image of a homeless man sleeping under a sign that read, No Thoroughfare, beneath the Queensboro Bridge. With only one such photograph under her belt, she might not have fully understood her feelings on the affair. That would soon change. One of her friends, really more of an acquaintance, a photographer named Dorothea Lang, invited her along on a photography field trip to the Unemployed Exchange Association sawmill outside of Oroville, California. Here, she would begin to find the photographic voice that would see her through the rest of her many years. And also here is where we will stop her story. This is part one, and in the next episode, we will conclude it with part two. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. (laughs) Each episode, we review a couple of zines. We've been into zines forever and ever, and uh, this time around, we have one that I'm not sure that we would really call a zine. No, I would say it's more of a deep dive. (laughs) 
Well, it, <laughs> I guess it's a deep dive. It is called The Elements and Principles of Visual Analysis by Graham Parsons. This sounds like a paper. It is not. It's way more cooler because it has pictures in it. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It is way more cooler. And so essentially what this is, is a, a, a sort of photo manual, mm-hmm. not really like an owner's manual. It goes through a number of ideas, photographic ideas, and it describes these ideas, Graham does. Mm-hmm. He has, on one page, it has the idea with some writing, and on the other page, it has a photo exemplifying that. So it is a photo zine in that respect, where every other page is a photo by a number of different photographers. It is quite a collection of beautiful t- photography, but also a lovely explanation about different types of composition as well. The pictures kind of break it up so it's not so much of like an intense paper. I really enjoyed it. What a cool project to do with a bunch of people. And honestly, he's a good writer, so. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It flows. He, he talks about things like lines and shape, value, form, space, contrast, movement, emphasis, proportion, unity, and composition. It's it not everything you need to know about photography, but we're afraid to ask, but it is really damn close. Yeah. The photographers are are definitely people that, uh, if you're in our little bubble of photography, I, I think you've probably heard of them. There's JP, there's Matt Marash, there's Susie D. Hernandez, Max Friedman, Devin Holt. Definitely folks that you have heard of and you've seen their photos on Instagram. This is a wonderful little zine. We've been meaning to, to review it for a while now, and I did see that a day before we were recording this, Ariella, or Ariella... <laughs> talked about it on her story on Instagram. So it's definitely making the rounds and we hope that you will all pick it up too. You can pick it up at onemorestop.hotpinkwords.uk and we will have links in the show notes and all of that, of course. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, definitely something to have on your shelf. Uh, when my friends come over, sometimes I will trade stacks with them. Uh, so sometimes I'll be like, oh, you know, you should read this. <laughs> read this one. This is a good one to give to someone that really kind of wants like a broader, like bigger understanding about photography. Very well done. All right. So zine number two is better off number four. <laughs> So Better Off Zine makes these wonderful, wonderful zines. Ugh, this guy is like legit the nicest and shares like every single one of my pictures. Like he is just on Instagram, like in an insane way. <laughs> he is sharing and promoting others' work like nobody I've ever seen. Seriously, if there was an award for that, he would get it. Uh Absolutely. I love getting his zines because he always ends up giving me like a sticker or two and I love them so much. <laughs> it is great stickers. So this one is the fourth issue by Paolo Buen Camino. Yes, it is black and white and it is just phenomenal as far as kind of like some Emma Jean uh, vibes going on. There is. Right? There is some definite precisionism going on here with the shadows. Yes. Absolutely. The composition of all the shots, the gradients of the blacks into the grays to the whites, the grain, uh, the sharp lines, even like he's got a picture of him in nature with his shadow. I, I like, I'm obsessed with this. I do not know why. Um, I love it when photographers do this. It's like one of my favorite things ever. 
<laughs> I know it's silly, but it's just like, I don't know. There's just something special about it. Um, so yeah, he has like amazing sharp lines, beautiful, like with buildings and sh- it's excellent. And then the end of the zine, it is like soft whites and lighter grays in nature, grasses, trees, leaves, a way that his shallow depth of field portraits with the grass and the trees around it are, it's just incredible. I love how he plays with shadow. I love the way that he, his composition just works. The way that he shoots people is just like real. I was just getting all of the better off scenes that you can so far. Yes. He's done, I think he's in four. I think, unless there's a five. There that may I don't be a fifth about. one floating around somewhere, but each each issue is done by a different person. This yes. one is done by Paolo Buen Camino. And, you know, pick it up with the other ones. His They're, they're yes. priced so, so conservatively, so well. Yeah, I have Chandler's right here. Chandler's is so wonderful. Love oh. her zine. So please pick them up. We will have all that information in the show notes. Yay! All Through a Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting, books, our newspapers.com account for research, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do it without you. If you like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and extra nonsense, as well as a bonus episode that we just did that counts as a bonus episode and extra nonsense, you can become a Patreon subscriber. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash authoralens for more info. Whoa, Vanya, it looks like we are coming to an end of another episode. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm actually kind of impressed I I got through (laughs) the first half. We don't know that you did yet. So (laughs) what are you doing? Well, I guess we kind of do know what you're doing next week, photographically speaking. You've already talked about Mexico. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I still have to pick out my film, which sounds incredibly fun, but it's also just completely (laughs) (laughs) nerve-wracking. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I bet it is. And then just like going through like, I have to take the bag out and ask them to look at it unless just just traveling is it's great when you get there but just going through security and just being at the airport sucks (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why anybody would like this so yeah uh photographically speaking i will be in warm waters probably getting sunburn taking as many photographs as possible, really hoping to kind of expand the way that I shot from the last time I was down there. Uh, It is a point break, so it's a lot different than I'm uh, used to shooting, a lot easier in um, many ways, but also can be lazier too. So I have to make sure that I, um, I don't know, just come up with some fun stuff. How about you? Well, I didn't really have much of an idea what I'd be doing in the next week or so. But I did just get a new lens, and I'm not a gear talker. Uh, it is. Oh my a, god, you are right now. No, not really. I, I, here's here's the thing. It is a brass lens. It is a Steinheil from like 1890 something, and I'm mounting it on a lens board for uh, for the Graflex. 
Mm. I will be trying to do that. I'm I'm hoping to do that tomorrow from when we're recording, which kind of brings us to the next dev party where we are just devving. That we just kind of decided to take like a, a pretty casual approach to the next dev party. Soup's cash. Soup's cash. And we will be not just casual, but we're gonna be kind of going back into the basics. If you haven't developed film before or just when you re- little refresher, we're going to be doing the very basics. But also <laughs> I'm going to be shooting with this lens, this hopefully, with this new lens. Oh, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. And we will see what it can do. I'll be taking it to work tomorrow to, uh, I have to drill a hole in a lens board and uh, mount the lens on it. So we'll see if I can manage to do any of that. You can do that. I'm sure you I can, can do that. that. That's easy And enough. you're talking about the crowd, right? The Well, no, I'm talking about the, what do I have? Is it a pacemaker? Or a speed? I have a pacemaker. So you either have a crown or a speed. Well, I have a crown. And this one's also a speed. It has the, the focal plane shutter in the back. The, this has the, the focal plane shutter in the back. And this lens, the brass lens, doesn't have its own shutter. So you mm-hmm. need to provide a shutter or Ooh. shoot it very, very long. And honestly, I think I'll be shooting indoors because it's fucking cold right now. And so it'll be a very long exposure. But we shall see. We shall see what happens. Are you going to make it a lens cap for it? It won't be tomorrow, but at some point I'm going to have to. Yes, Yes, you do. You do. So, Vanya, is there anything else we have to say? Thank you for listening to us go on and on and on. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram by email. It's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughlens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag yourself, hashtag allthroughlenspodcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for... For many episodes, yes. We definitely have one up now, so check it out. See what we're listening to. Just search All Through Lens. It'll be a blue logo on Spotify. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you can find your podcasts. I mean, you found this one, so just go there. Subscribe <laughs> and, and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you, and see you next week at Dev Party. Oh, uh, Vanya? Uh, yeah. Do you want to go out and shoot? Uh, fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. You. Me? You like to pick funny stuff out and uh, put it at the end of the episodes. Oh, well, yeah, we do have little stingers at the end of the episodes. We do that. So if you guys haven't, like, heard the last... 56 episodes you guys are kind of missing out <laughs> there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of hidden gems for you i suppose yeah